right, welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. Now, if you have a Bible handy, please open up to Romans chapter 6, and I'll do a little bit of recap while we turn there. Last week, we discussed why can't we sin all willy-nilly. Now, there was a willy-nilly party in St. Paul's day, a group of people advocating for antinomianism, the idea that if Jesus died for our sins and that means the grace of God poured upon us, then by all means, let's go ahead and continue in sin. And while there was a willy-nilly party back then, there was also a super-duper anti-willy-nilly party that accused St. Paul of being part of the willy-nilly party. I'm sorry, I'm just having so much fun saying willy-nilly party. <laughs> The antinomians and the Judaizers were very, very much against each other in this sense. And St. Paul had to walk a tightrope. Because on the one hand, for the past three chapters now, since Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5, he's been discussing how we are justified, counted righteous by God, on account of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone, sola fide. And this is... All really, really good news because Jesus, having died for our sins, when you put your faith in him, his reward, his righteousness is imputed to you. So you are promised eternal life and the forgiveness of all of your sins, all of God's mercy and all of his grace poured out unto you on account of believing in him. But does that mean we sin willy-nilly? That now you've gotten your get-out-of-jail-free card, but permanently this time. You don't have to put it in the discard pile. You always have that get-out-of-jail-free card of saying you believe in Jesus. Well, no. As we covered last week, St. Paul made it very clear that, hey, as a believer, you have died to sin. And the linchpin of this, the moment you die to sin and become alive in Jesus Christ, is your Baptism. So he says, we're going to go ahead and just reread those first five verses of chapter 6, where St. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we, we covered five verses there. And I really didn't give nearly enough time to talk about baptism. As we read on, we're going to get into it a little bit more. But just a little bit on baptism here. St. Paul is saying here that if you are baptized into Christ Jesus, you are baptized into his death, dying to sin. Jesus died for your sins. You die to your sins. And in this baptism, it says you are united with him. I mean, you're 
brought closer to Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, St. Paul says, All who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is a kind of union between the believer and our Lord Jesus Christ upon the moment of their baptism. So our Baptist friends object, saying, Hey, wait, that sounds like a work. And we covered a little bit of this last week. The idea being that if you're supposed to be saved through faith alone, not any works, why would a human work like baptism be needed for salvation? And I think there's a little bit of confusion in it. The first is that our Baptist friends like to define baptism as an outward expression of an inward change due to faith. It is something you do as a public declaration of your faith, supposedly. But then in addition to that, they also, because of this, will define it as a human work. The problem is, is, well, what makes baptism do what the Bible says it does? Well, well God. It's by his word, by the power of his word. There's no one verse in the Bible that defines baptism as a public declaration of an inward change. Instead, whenever the Bible talks about baptism, it's talking about it doing things. Something special is happening here. Something that guarantees that we too might walk in newness of life. Now that's good, that's a promise. But that comes with its own issues that honestly, if we're going to look at this honestly, the Baptist friend of ours might have a point. They do say, does this mean that if you are baptized, then automatically you are saved? You can live like hell for the rest of your life, believe or disbelieve whatever you want. And because you got some water sprinkled on you and had a baptismal formula spoken over you, that suddenly that just means you're automatically going to get into heaven. No, see the difference is here is that the sacrament of baptism is something which is apprehended by faith. St. Paul is all about faith in the book of Romans. If we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, then everything Jesus does for us, all of those rewards are bestowed upon us in our baptism. But without faith, does your baptism do anything for you? Absolutely not, because you're not putting your faith in the person who made that baptism efficacious. And you're not putting your faith in the word of God, which makes that baptism efficacious. Am I making sense? Martin Luther puts it very much more succinctly than I can when he says that faith receives the sacraments. So when we are baptized, we believe that in that baptism, we have the merits of Christ imputed upon us, imputed righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins, being united to Jesus, being promised the new life. Now, if you stop believing, you're not holding on to that promise anymore. Why would it apply to you? But I just wanted to bring up those objections real quick because I believe I didn't give it the real kind of treatment that St. Paul really merits it here, because this is the first time that he's bringing up baptism in the book of Romans. 
it's extremely important. And let's go ahead and read on here from verse 6 to see a little bit more of that, of what it does and why it is important to us. In verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So how does all this work? Let's break that down a little bit. In verse 6, it says, Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, at what moment is your old self crucified? Well, St. Paul here is talking about baptism in those first few verses. So the proper Lutheran response is to say, yes, when you are baptized, you are made dead to sin and alive to God. We mentioned last week that death is a separation. And for the Christian, death is a switch. You're separated from your sins and united to Christ, where previously you were estranged from Christ, separated from him, and united to your sins. But when it comes to the moment that that happens, our Baptist friends, our Calvinist friends might say, well, what about regeneration? Because it says that the Holy Spirit is the one who's granting faith here. It says in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit makes us alive. So whether it's baptism or the Holy Spirit is the question we have to ask now. And I would say, well, both. <laughs> the Holy Spirit likes to work through means. We cannot forget that the entirety of Scripture, St. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all Scripture is breathed by God. Now, if it's breathed by God, we understand God's breath in Holy Scripture is usually understood to be the Holy Spirit himself, which brings life, which means that all of this text here is inspired and God's word does not come back to him empty, as we see in Isaiah 55 verse 11. I believe 11 and 12. So it's the word of God that makes baptism efficacious, but that's a nice shorthand way of saying that the Holy Spirit guarantees the truth of these promises. So, in the book of Acts, if somebody was baptized, but they weren't sealed with the Holy Spirit, that was considered odd. That was something that needed to be fixed. The same thing if somebody was speaking in tongues and they were filled with the Spirit, but they weren't baptized yet. That was an odd thing to the apostles. It needed to be fixed. The two are not meant to be separate. Now, we might ask, well, in what order does this happen? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I leave that up to God. 
But strictly speaking, our old self, our old Adam, our unregenerate, sinful self, what we call the old Adam, is crucified with Christ. Our body of sin dies around the moment of our baptism. And St. Paul says here in verse 6, it is in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And, I wish he had included and there, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The body of sin, our old Adam, is brought to nothing. What does that mean? Well, if you are your body of sin, if that is alive and well in you, well, then darn it, you're damned. (laughs) That's a bad thing. Nobody wants that, right? So the power of sin, the power of your old unregenerate self needs to be brought to nothing. And that is what we mean when we say being crucified with Christ. That old you is not there anymore. Well, he kind of is, but we'll get to that in chapter 7. Think of the old Adam kind of like this zombie power in our flesh attempting to bring us back down to being dead to God and alive to sin. But, again, that's chapter 7. So, it says, in order that, the purpose of our baptism then is to kill the old Adam and raise up the believer. Everything you were supposed to be, it is a change in the core of who you are. Now, he says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, now we have a dual purpose. If the body of sin is brought to nothing, that means we are not supposed to be slaves to sin anymore, addicted to sin. Now, you're going to struggle with sin. Yet again, we'll get to that in chapter 7. But baptism frees you. And I would say it frees your will as well. Because if your old self, the body of sin, is a slave, then you are not free from sin and death. But if that body of sin, no longer a slave, it's brought to nothing, you are no longer a slave to sin, then you're free. Your will is going to be freed. However, weakly at first, we still have struggles, we still have addictions and things we have to fight, but now you don't want it anymore. It's not in your nature to want it anymore. There is an honest, earnest change in you, that core change of who you are and what makes you tick. So we continue in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Again, It is a freedom here that keeps us, well, different from the rest of the world. You don't see things the same way you used to when you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. I cannot commit a sin without feeling really guilty for it. Now, the non-believer has guilt, sure, but it's with different motivations. It's with a different feeling. The law accuses us and says that we deserve to be damned, but when you're a believer, if you sin willingly, it's kind of a feeling of, hey, you knew better. 
almost like God is disappointed in you and you let him down. It's a terrible feeling. But you're free from the power of sin over your will. So now it's a totally different thing. It's a totally different way of processing the world, of making decisions. And when we get into sanctification, we do rejoice that the Holy Spirit helps us in this. God doesn't say, all right, you're free from sin. Um, go do a perfect job now. <laughs> Heaven forbid. But we continue on in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's another promise of our baptism. When you are baptized, you die to sin and you are raised with Christ. Now, with that, again, our Baptist friends reading this and hearing about me talking about verses 6 through 8 here are going to say, well, what about faith? After all, you Lutherans baptize your babies. Now, if faith and baptism are not supposed to be separate, the same way that the Holy Spirit and baptism are not supposed to be separate, well, why do you baptize kids then? Babies can't believe in anything. What are you talking about? This is kind of crazy here. Well, to which point, I'm going to respond with, well, St. John the Baptist in Luke, he has faith in Jesus and he's in the womb. And in the Psalms, they talk about being knitted together in the womb, being in God, being with God in that. God ordains strength from the mouth of babes to put to shame God's enemies. And I don't think he's going to do that with people who don't have faith in him. An infant can believe. They may not be able to articulate it intellectually outside of goo, ga, goo, goo, ga. You know, I mean, I'm not going to expect my baby son to fully express the Apostles' Creed. Goo, goo, ga, 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 ga. Maker of ga and goo. No, he's not going to be able to do that. But while his faith is not articulated and it, it is not intelligible, it is still there by the grace of God. And since Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, I have a hard time believing that babies aren't part of that all nations. So Lutherans have confirmation class to confirm to us, the church, that yes, indeed, God has granted the faith to this child that should accompany his baptism or her baptism. So yes, we do believe that faith is the thing. Faith is the through, that through which we are saved. Yes, it is extremely important. But when and how and where faith is bestowed isn't up to us. That is up to God. So we baptize our babies. And we rejoice that with that, there's all these promises that come with that. So that if my child were to die from SIDS or something like that, I can rejoice in between tears, obviously, that my Lord promises that that child will also live with him. Because it says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
And we continue on in verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. How does that work for us? If I have already died, I know I will live with Christ. But don't Christians die too? Well, yes, at their baptism. The question is, though, what happens to our bodies? Our bodies stop moving. Our bodies cease breathing. Brain function stops. Blood stops flowing. The lungs aren't gathering in air anymore with the help of that handy-dandy diaphragm. But is that really death? Sure, the body, in a clinical sense, dies, but you're still alive in Christ. So one Lutheran pastor that I respect said, oh, you'll die, but you'll not really die. Because you already did. You died to sin, and now you're alive to God. Your body, yes, that will expire. You're going to shed this mortal coil in anticipation of a resurrection, a real physical resurrection with a perfect body, a perfected body. But that doesn't mean that death is it. Death of the body is no longer this period, this end of a sentence that we need to fear. It is a comma. It is a quick pause on the way to future glory. So we are never going to die again the same way we died to sin at our baptism. Because, well, we know that that's what applies to our Lord Jesus. It says, too, here that Jesus died to sin once for all. Now, did Jesus need to die to sin to become alive to God? Absolutely not. He is sinless and always has been. But it is for our sake that in dying for our sins, he also died to sin once for all. So, being united to Jesus means you die to sin the same way he died for sins, in the same way he died to sin himself. Everything is an imputation onto us from our Lord on account of Christ. So when people deny that baptism does something on account of some belief that it's a human work, I mean, it's at this moment that God does so much for you. Saying that a pastor put his, his hand or a clamshell or, or dunked you in some water and saying that that's this big work that the man does or that the church does misses out on God doing everything in this rite, in this sacrament for us. It's a real treasure for us to hold on to. And what's the conclusion here? What do we say about that on account of it? Well, St. Paul writes in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says to the willy-nilly party, Hey, that's not you anymore. And to the people accusing him of being an antinomian, part of the willy-nilly party, Hey, that's not us anymore. I don't want people to do this because we have a core change ever since our baptism that makes us new and sets us free from sin. 
it's incredibly important to keep this in mind. He gives the so what to the sacrament, that now we have a way to live in gratitude and in life, in freedom for God. So he continues here in verse 12. Let's go ahead and read the rest of the passage here from verses 12 to 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So in verse 11, when he says, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, that's the faith part of it. Uh, We can't use forgiveness as an excuse to sin, as uh, the Lutheran Study Bible's commentary puts it, but that requires considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I am not yet in eternal glory with Jesus. It's not the resurrection yet. Christ has not returned yet. So while I don't see myself being dead, (laughs) it's hard to apprehend that it is still something by faith. And what does considering myself dead to sin look like? In verse 12, he says, well, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let this stuff have charge over you. We have freedom in Christ, but our old Adam being so passionate, I I like that word that he uses there, passion. It's translated as passion the fleshy ways that we want to in pride, in fear, in lust, do things we know we're not supposed to do. Every time we sin, we are letting that mortal body that is not redeemed yet the same way my soul has been redeemed. We're letting that take charge over us. We're doing what it says. And St. Paul says, well, if I'm dead to sin, I should not let this happen. This is part of the doctrine of tentatio, which in Latin really does mean struggle. In tentatio, we understand that I have a lot to struggle with. I have a dead body. It's alive, sure, the blood's pumping, the brain's doing its thing, air comes into the lungs, But there is still sin in there that needs to eventually be brought 100% to nothing. In my heart, in my soul, in my spirit, everything is changed. My will is freed, but I'm still going to struggle with this. So St. Paul says, don't let it happen. Don't let sin conquer you. You were freed from that. So obviously, I think the implication here is we need to rely on God to help us, not let sin reign over us. But he says, do not present your members to sin. What does he mean by members? That's a nice little word there, isn't it? The Greek word is mele, or it comes from the word melos, which means limb or a part of you. 
you know, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, right? This is that idea. Obviously, though, please don't actually pluck out your eye. Please don't pull an origin here. It's more about control and about dominion here. Do not present your members to sin, any part of you, as instruments for unrighteousness. Again, if you're an instrument, you are a slave, you are a tool, and that's what the sinful part of your mortal body, your flesh, wants you to do. And now that you've been given back some control, now that your will has been freed to weakly attempt to please God in faith, you don't want to let that have dominion over you. Now, the interesting thing here is St. Paul is saying something very, very similar to something we see in Genesis chapter 4. If we look at Genesis chapter 4, turning here real quick, with Cain and Abel here, what does God say to Cain after Cain is all angry that God didn't accept his offering? In chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Hmm. St. Paul here is advocating that we have self-control in pleasing God with obedience. And he says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's not just about having the self-control to not sin. It's also about having the willingness and the gratitude, the earnestness, which says now, instead of just avoiding evil, I want to avoid evil and do good. But now we get into a little bit of confusion here in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What on earth are we talking about? Because after all, if I'm trying to not sin and I want to do the right thing, where do we learn that? Well, we learn that from the law. The law teaches us right and wrong. What's the wrong thing we need to avoid doing and what is the right thing that we should be doing? How are we not under law if now we're avoiding sin and trying our best to do good? Here... We have to explain something. St. Paul says earlier in chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, as you sin, if you're under the law, coming into contact with the law, your flesh says, well, now I'm going to sin more. Now I'm going to do this more. You're not under God's grace. You're not under his mercy. So you have no reason to do anything but sin more. And you can't, by nature, change that. You can't make a change. Maybe you could make a change to your habit, but not to your sinful motivations here. Our sinful flesh, in interacting with the law, sins more. But now, we are not under the law. We are under God's grace. So the law, instead of being over me, is now beside me. It's a friend. It's a helper. Moses is no longer my accuser who whips me and beats me under the weight of all the bad stuff I do. Moses is now my friend. 
helping me, teaching me, helping guide me through how I express this new life in Jesus. How do I live out that core change that happened at the moment of my baptism? St. Paul isn't saying, you're not under the law, so be under the law in order to not sin and have this self-control that you learn from the law because you're not under the law. I mean, at first blush, it does sound a bit like he's contradicting himself within his own sentence. But it's about the change in the relationship the Christian has to the law. And the motivation is different, too. When you are under the law, you are under coercion. You are told sin should not have dominion over your life. And if you do, boy howdy, are you in a world of hurt and pain because you're going to get punished. You're going to deserve hellfire. Look at you, you miserable sinner. And no matter how much you try to qualify to the law, no matter how much you change your behavior, it doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change your old man. The law can't do that. It does not save. So there's no pleasing it. There's no doing good enough. But Jesus did good enough. When you're under grace, instead of being under that kind of harsh, almost ugly motivation, that coercion to obey God, now we can be under grace and say, well, I want to do this. Jesus has already fulfilled the law for me, so now I want to do good because he did it for me. I want to live for him. I want to live in a way that pleases him. I ask for the Holy Spirit to help me in pleasing my Lord, and he's sent the law to now be a friend to me instead of a cruel overseer, walking side by side with me so that I can please God. We get to do good works, more than it could be said that we have to do good works. We're happy to do this. We rejoice in God's grace poured upon us. And that's the core change, the attitude change, the dispositional change that happens when we are saved. And we rejoice because that's happened to us, and it's been that way since our baptism. Amen and amen.